Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This March, uh, really the end of February, the Jewish community throughout the world will begin to celebrate the festival known as Purim. Purim is a holiday that celebrates the story as it's told to us in the Migilat Esther the book of Esther, um, that is found in the Hebrew Apocrypha. Um, And so this holiday, which is um, a holiday that is uh, based on a story um, which may or may not be true, that's one of the topics for us to talk about this morning, is a holiday of joy, And it's a holiday that finds itself uh, enmeshed in the nuances of the Hebrew calendar. For those of you who listen regularly, you know that the Hebrew calendar is an amalgamation of the solar and lunar calendar. And because of that amalgamation, there is a need every uh, seven out of 19 years to um, add an extra month to the Hebrew calendar so that it uh, keeps in pace with the solar calendar or the lunar calendar um, and ensures that Jewish holidays are celebrated at the proper point in the year. And so an extra month is added every so often, and that extra month is the Hebrew month of Adar during during which Param occurs. And so some years, like this year, Purim is early, but it can also be later. Um, and that is because it falls um, during the second of the month of Adar, um, which keeps it in its right uh, calendar cycle. Now, with me this morning is Rabbi Chaim Mendelssohn of um, the rabbi of Chabad Centerpoint in Ottawa and director of public affairs of the Canadian uh, Canadian Chabad Association, or Association of Chabad. And he is with me this morning to talk about the holiday of Purim and some of the more interesting and esoteric uh, dynamics of this holiday. So Rabbi Mendelssohn, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you so much, Rabbi Garden, for having me on your program. It's well, an it's honor. a pleasure. And I want to begin by asking you to share with our listeners um, a brief outline of the holiday of Purim. Well, as, you, as you're well aware, the holiday of Purim is a uh, complex holiday with many nuanced details. In fact, I believe, uh, if it hasn't been done yet, Uh, someone from Hollywood should take the story from the Book of Esther and make it into a a movie. And it would be be a long-running movie with a a really um, unique plot. But basically, to summarize the story, uh, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, uh, following the destruction of the First Temple, um, the uh, king who was the king over 127 lands, King Ahasuerus. Um, had, a Persian had, king. 
the Persian king, exactly, exactly, um, was uh, was married to Queen Vashti at the time. Now, Queen Vashti, at uh, King Ahasuerus' behest, was killed, and um, and uh, as such, King Ahasuerus was in a search for a new queen. And ironically, with uh, with an unbelievable twist, he ends up marrying Esther, who was a Jewish maiden. She was a cousin or a niece of uh, of Mordechai, who was the recognized Jewish leader at the time. And Mordechai recognized that this was a tremendous opportunity for the Jewish people, and intuitively he asked uh, Esther not to reveal her identity as a Jew. Um, Later, to, to, to cut to the chase, later the king's prime minister, who was uh, highly regarded by King Ahasuerus, he's the villain of the Purim story, his name is Haman, um, decided that he wanted to uh, destroy and annihilate all of the Jewish people. And at the, uh, at the very last moment, Queen Esther was able to petition the king uh, through revealing her identity that she too was Jewish to save the Jewish people. And so the, uh, the twist, and that's part of the, the message of Purim, is that there was a complete transformation where instead of the Jewish people being annihilated, Haman and his uh, ten sons were killed, and uh, Mordechai, who again was the recognized Jewish leader at the time, was uh, lifted to a great position of authority by the king. So this is a story that takes place not in the land of Israel, but in the land of Persia. And it um, speaks, as you've um, wonderfully outlined, to a community that is living in Persia after the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE, and who's been in Persia, and who, for reasons that we're not going to speak about this morning, chose not to go back to the land of Israel with Ezra and Nehemiah. So they've been in Persia for a while, and they've uh, accommodated or not to living outside the land of Israel. And this story comes to tell um, about what happens when living outside the land of Israel, there rises someone who, um, for reasons not clearly identified in the book, um, sees the Jews as a threat. And decides that he wants to, in this case, a he, the character named Haman, wants to destroy the Jewish people. Correct? That's right. And not an unusual story, one that's repeated throughout Jewish history over and over again. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that that you you mentioned that the, the Megillah, which is the recorded, as you mentioned earlier, the recorded story of Purim, um, although it doesn't go into great detail uh, explaining Haman's motivation. Yet at the same time, when Haman um, speaks to the king about his desire to see the Jews annihilated, he does say that the, that the Jewish people are a nation who are mifuzer umifayrod beinamim. They live dispersed amongst us, and yet they don't adopt our local customs. They behave differently. They do things differently, which... I think is can, can lead to an interesting study on some of the motivations behind anti-Semitism. Um, 
because Heyman is basically demonstrating that there isn't anything in particular that they've done, but it's just the fact that the Jewish people are seen as being different, that they're not prepared to completely assimilate, and uh, and as that, uh, because of that, they deserve to be destroyed, which I, which I find interesting. It's a fascinating study and a fascinating insight, because I'm going to take it one step further. Um, the name of the heroine of the story is Esther. And is Esther a Hebrew name? Es- the name Esther? Yes. Well, the name Esther certainly uh, has has um, its roots in Hebrew. Correct. Um, the, the, the Talmud actually asks that same question about the name Esther, and they say that the, the reason why she was given this name, although her her true name was Hadassah, the Megillah right. tells us, but she was called Esther because at that time the Jewish people were living, as you have mentioned, they were living outside of Israel. Uh, Mordechai and the leaders amongst the Jewish people had uh, remembered vividly uh, just uh, a little more than five decades earlier the um, the experience and the scene of the Holy Temple where they were able to um, see God in His glory and His resplendence, and were able to communicate and connect with God in in a way that was only possible in the Holy Temple. And as such, they refer to Esther as Esther, which means hidden, because it referred to the fact that God's glory was hidden for the Jewish people at that time. And, and, and this is that a, intimate and, relationship. And this is a story uh, in which much is hidden. Right, Esther has this ambiguous relationship in the text with her um, cousin Mordechai. She doesn't r- reveal who he is. She doesn't reveal her Jewish uh, heritage, and um, she deceives the king, um, both with regard to her heritage and in the final denouement, the final uh, banquet. She doesn't reveal the true purpose of the banquet. So much is hidden in this story. And before we get to the practical celebrations, I want to ask you something that is truly noticeable in this book and follows on our conversation of hidden. And that is, of all the books in the Hebrew text, in all the sacred texts, this is the only book in which the Hebrew name of God does not appear. God appears to be hidden. And yet, this is a story in which uh, many um, believe that God appears, even if God's name is not present. So perhaps you can explain to our listeners this uh, duality of no mentioning of Hebrew, the Hebrew name of God, and yet so many uh, people who observe the holiday and celebrate the holiday uh, do so in thanksgiving for the miracle that God has created for the survival of the Jewish people, yes? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's a great question. It's a question that has been discussed by, um, by many of the, uh, of the commentaries and the mystics, and um, one of the one of the interesting uh, components to the story of Purim is that when you read through the story, and I alluded to this earlier, it does seem like a series of coincidences. It isn't like the story of Passover that we're going to celebrate in a month from now, where we um, celebrate 
uh, God's outstretched arm in taking the Jewish people out of Egypt. And if you look into the Bible, the Bible describes in detail the plagues, which were extraordinary plagues that punished uh, the Jewish oppressors, the Egyptians at that time. We speak about the splitting of the sea and the Jews crossing the sea. We speak about extraordinary miracles where it would be impossible to deny God's presence within these miracles. The story of Purim, by contrast, is uh, is a story of coincidences. Um, King King Ahasuerus uh, decides to to kill his wife Vashti because Vashti had done something that was inappropriate. Uh, King Ahasuerus looks for a new queen. He finds the most beautiful girl, uh, Esther. He marries Esther. Haman comes up with a plot to destroy the people, and uh, being that uh, that Esther happens to be Jewish, she manages to convince the, the king to, um, to abolish this, this decree and this plot against the Jewish people. So you don't directly see the hand of God, and that's why when you read through the Megillah, God's name almost need not be mentioned. But I believe that this, in and of itself, this duality, as you said earlier, really touches upon our life in a way that none of the other holidays do. How so? Because the miracle of Passover is a bit far-fetched for our imagination. We in our own lives don't really see God's presence the way the Jews did when leaving Egypt. Yet we do live a life with a series of coincidences, and we do live a life where virtually every day, if we are prepared to open our eyes, we can see how blessed our lives our lives are, and how miraculous our lives are, and the little moments that change our lives every single day. And we ought to be able to recognize those moments and thank God for those moments. Being a truly committed person religiously is about recognizing and feeling God even at the most mundane of times. It isn't only... Um, it isn't only appreciating God when an extraordinary miracle happens for you. It isn't only appreciating God when you're in Jerusalem. It's being able to appreciate God when you're in Ottawa on a day-to-day basis, when you, when you can't find your keys, and suddenly you're, you're, you're late to that appointment, and that being late to that appointment feels terrible at the time. But when you look back at, when you look back at it a few days later... Suddenly you realize that being late to that appointment really gave you an opportunity to be able to meet somebody outside the office. It's those little things that we often don't thank God for. We just see them as a series of coincidences that the story of Purim reminds us that we ought to recognize as God's hand in our life and pay tribute to God and acknowledge His presence, even in the smallest and most subtle of ways. So one of the things I've often believed is that um, a truly religious person wears different uh, eyeglasses than uh, a person who doesn't see the world um, through religious lenses. And what you've suggested is that Purim is a festival in which um, the religious person it makes manifest seeing the world through um, the lenses of faith and belief rather than the necessity to see God's name in the book. 
um, a religious person understands how God can be present even without um, God's name being mentioned. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, I, I think that was a, that was a, uh, you captured what I was trying to say effectively. Um, I think I think uh, uh, just to, just to drop more than that. I think sometimes when we speak about religion, and I know I use the term religious as well, sometimes it can be seen as a divide. And I think this story of Purim uh, really ought to capture the heart and the imagination of all people, those who consider themselves to be religious and those who don't. Because everyone ought to be able to acknowledge and appreciate the presence of a superpower in their lives. Whether they pray every day or don't pray every day, whether they, uh, whether they go to synagogue or to church, or whatever it is they do to demonstrate, uh, demonstrate that belief, to have a, a, a moment of silence, which ironically was something the late Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory pushed for in schools, that in schools in the morning, children, instead of making a prayer in a public school, which would not be appropriate because everyone prays differently, just to have a moment of silence, just to be able to reflect on the fact that there's a superpower in, in our lives, and this superpower believes in us and cares about us, and organizes all of the cosmos so that our life can work out to in the most effective and meaningful and 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 the best possible way. So, for even a, a young child who may not grow up in a religious home or a person who doesn't identify as religious, the fact that a series of coincidences is is thanks to. A, a, a broader superpower, and the fact that they can take a moment, whether it be on a holiday or whether it be every day in the morning or maybe before they go to bed, and, and offer a thank you, I think is something that, that everyone can, can appreciate. Well, you've certainly expressed it eloquently. Um, as we said when we began this morning, this is a holiday that um, has many different dynamics to it. Uh, certainly one of the dynamics is that um, it is filled with these wonderful um, theological possibilities. Um, but in addition to the theological possibilities, it's a holiday in which there are a great many fun activities. Um, in many ways, um, this is a holiday um, that has similarities um, to uh, Halloween in the North American context because Jewish children dress up and there's uh, candy that's distributed. So perhaps you can talk a bit about the fun aspects of uh, Purim. Why do people dress up? Why do children dress up and sometimes even adults dress up in costume? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, just to, to, to elaborate or to, to, be, to give an introduction to my response, the, the Megillah itself outlines at the very end of the Megillah a series of uh, commandments that uh, Mordechai felt it was right to observe each year in recognition of God's miracle and in observing this holiday. So just um, to remind the listeners, the miracle is the survival of the Jewish people, um, though Haman, the villain, had um, proclaimed that this was going to be the death knell of the Jewish people, the tables were turned on him. Exactly, exactly. Okay, good, so we uh, keep so that four, in mind. So four, there was a series of four, of four responsibilities uh, 
uh, that Jews are required to observe on this day. Each year? Um, each year. And uh, one of them is to read over the story of uh, Purim from the Megillah, from the scroll, and we read it twice. The second one is to uh, celebrate with a festive meal. The third one is to distribute um, uh, charity to the poor. And the fourth one is to distribute gifts of food uh, to your friends as a, as a demonstration of celebration and joy. Um, so dressing up, masquerading, is actually not one of those four commandments, but it's become an identifying feature of Purim, and it's something, like you said, that's been adopted throughout the entire world. Jewish communities all over, if you go into a uh, synagogue on Purim, you'll see children and adults who are dressed up in, in, in costume, some being very creative costumes and original costumes. And the, the origin of that is disputed. Uh, but one of, the, one of the great reasons that personally resonates with me is that Purim, again, going back to the theme we were speaking, is about uh, hiding, it's about masking the truest identity and still being able to, to connect to that, that, to that essence. What I mean by that is, like we said earlier, God is, sometimes feels distant. Esther, as we said, his name is Haster Aster, that God was hidden from the Jewish people at that time. And God was hidden, God is often hidden from humanity, often on a collective level and often on a personal level. And we feel distant from God, but we ought to know that God still permeates our lives and that God is still there with us. And so we mask our truest identity on Purim by recognizing that even though right now everyone looks at us and they see we're dressed up as a clown or we're dressed up as, uh, as whatever it may be, but that's not really who we are. We're really underneath the mask. And so the world around us is a mask. It's a mask hiding the deepest identity that exists, which is God's presence. And we ought to be able to open our eyes and recognize and feel God's presence and offer a thank you. Well... Uh, amazing how this holiday, which um, is usually thought of as just a fun holiday for children, raises so many wonderful theological uh, questions and poses some interesting answers to those questions. Um, I began by asking you to talk about why um, people get dressed up on this holiday. And lo and behold, we return to where we began. And that is, why was Esther given the name of uh, Esther from and Instead of the text telling us that she continued to be called Hadassah, which was traditionally her Hebrew name, she's now called the one who hides something. Um, so let's then follow through on the four traditions that you said uh, uh, emanate from the book of Esther. One is giving gifts to friends. Do people still do that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, people do. Um, it's referred to as Mishloach Manot, and people take it uh, now in, uh, in, in traditional circles to an extreme, because the commandment uh, from, or Moses's, um, I'm sorry, Mordecai's um, um, mention of this responsibility that Jewish people have was only about giving one gift, uh, which would be made up of two separate food items to one friend. And yet today it's become 
uh, a tradition where the vast majority of people uh, give all of their friends, or many of their friends, uh, these mishloch manot. And I remember growing up, this was one of the most exciting things in my home. Our living room floor would be covered with the baskets, and we'd be running around filling up the baskets to distribute to all of our friends. And it's no longer just one little gift. Uh, The baskets that I receive often have five, six, seven, eight gifts in it. Some of them are homemade, uh, and some of them are clearly purchased um, anywhere. Um, Normally, they they tend to be items that are kosher. So wherever one can buy bulk kosher uh, candies or bulk kosher little um, granola bars or little bottles of wine, they uh, become part of this mishloach manot basket. Um, and then you said there's the tradition of matanot le'evionim, um, I guess gifts to the poor, um, yeah. And where does that come from? Well, that it's, it comes from the same passage in the Megillah where, uh, where Mordechai uh, suggests that they give Mishloach Manot Ish Lereyeyu Umatanot Levyonim, which means uh, gifts to your friends, Mishloach Manot, gifts, send gifts to your friends, which we, which we manot, uh, right. we believe again, refers to food items. And Mishloch Matanot Lev Yonim, that one should give gifts, and we fulfill this obligation by giving money, by giving charity to the poor. Now, and why why do you think, I mean, uh, there's no uh, exact answer to this, but why do you think giving money to the poor, uh, originally I would guess it was giving money to the Jewish poor, rather than the poor in the community around you. Um, but why do you think they saw this as an essential part of a festival? You know what? This is one of the, the beautiful, um, the beautiful, uh, what makes Judaism so incredibly beautiful. And it's really the foundation and the fabric of what Judaism is all about. That one cannot possibly celebrate. And one cannot possibly feel joy unless he's sharing with others. That's why traditionally we're mandated to celebrate every Shabbat, every Friday evening. We're mandated to celebrate, to recognize and thank God for creating the world. And we have a festive meal. And these festive meals are traditionally done with guests. And the reason behind it is the same thing. One cannot properly celebrate or feel joy without sharing that joy with others. I'm going to have to... That was a beautiful place to end our conversation, to chat with our listeners about how we have transformed what appears to be a wonderful story of... um, Uh, superheroes saving the Jewish people into a beautiful expression of our faith and our commitment to God's presence in the world. I want to thank Rabbi Chaim Mendelson of the... uh, 
Chabad Centerpoint in Ottawa, Ontario, for joining with me this morning as my guest. Um, Purim will be celebrated on the evening of February 28th and the morning of March 1st. Um, and all of those are certainly open to anyone who would like to experience the joy of this celebration. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear this program on podcast through the CHRI website or through iTunes. Have a good day. Shalom. Shalom.